Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. I'm praying that you don't, uh, aren't bashful about taking an extra helping off the table. I got some things I want to set out for you today. And um, it's, it's a topic that I've had on my mind for quite some time, and I, I felt like the Lord wanted me this morning to talk about it. I have on the sign outside, Brother Cordell asked me what, what was the title of the message, and I, I told him, Broken Love. Have, have you ever had broken love? It seems that it worked well until all of a sudden something came along and caused it not to work. It was broken. But I'd like to look at a different type of love. It's an undying love. It's the story of two individuals back in the Old Testament, very unlikely couple to be referred to in this sense when you realize that their life was anything but full of love and faithfulness. The story of Hosea and Gomer. I want to, before I start, give you a little bit of a history lesson on the time in which Hosea and Gomer were living. If you look at the calendar, it was 760 years before Jesus was born. Jeroboam II, he was on the throne of the northern kingdom of Israel. Very wicked kingdom. His military exploits had extended the borders of his nation well beyond what Solomon had ever been able to accomplish. The tribute money, the tax money was rolling in from all the nations. The treasury was overflowing and the capital of Samaria was bulging. And the people of Israel were enjoying a period of unprecedented prosperity. That's the climate of the time we're going to be looking at now when we look at Hosea and Gomer. But I have to tell you a secret, and it's not so much a secret because we see the evidence in the day that we live in, that when prosperity comes, and a nation's at peace, there has a tendency, a strong tendency, for moral decay and spiritual degeneration. All of a sudden, secularism, materialism captures the hearts of everyone, and sin is unrestrained. And the sin that seems to grow like a garden, in a cultured garden, is the sin of swearing and lying and killing and stealing and adultery and drunkenness and perversion and perjury and deceit and oppression. And that's just the beginning of the list. But with all that stuff that was going on in Israel and in Samaria, that was not the thing that bothered God the most. The thing that grieved God at his very heart more than anything else was one sin. The sin of idolatry. We look at Hosea 4, verse 12 and 13. 
Hosea writes, my people consult a wooden idol and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, where the shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. <clears throat> 150 years preceding this, Jeroboam number one had set up uh, the golden calves. And when he set up those old golden calves, it was like a floodgate of idolatry, drunkenness, religious prostitution, human sacrifice. Now, since the Lord viewed Israel as his, life, his wife, he viewed her worship of others' gods as spiritual adultery. Now, taking into consideration that idolatry and spiritual adultery are things that God cannot tolerate, it, was, it began to affect the relationship that he had with his people. The Old Testament speaks frequently of Israel whoring after or playing the harlot with other gods. For instance, in Deuteronomy, the 31st chapter, verse 16, and the Lord said to Moses, you are going to rest with your ancestors, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. It's going to happen, Moses. They're going to go in, and they're going to submit themselves to the, the climate of the land, they're going to want to blend in. They're going to want to be part of it. Jehovah had told Israel from the beginning that he would not share them with others. God does not share that which is precious to him. You shall have no other gods before me. What number in the Ten Commandments was that one? That was number one. You shall have no other gods before me. But Israel had persistently ignored that command. And by the days of Jeroboam II, the situation had become completely intolerable. Even amidst all the prosperity, even amidst all the peace, the spiritual climate was detestable. God is about to speak decisively, and he first chooses a man named Amos. He's a former herdsman. He's from Tekoa. Strong voice that says he thundered God's warning of imminent judgment. But the nation paid very little or any attention to his voice. So God spoke again, this time through the prophet Hosea, whose name meant Jehovah is salvation. I, I like that because I know this is a, 
a direct relationship, Hosea, to Jesus. Hosea, again, his name means Jehovah is salvation. What does Yeshua, Jesus, mean? Yeshua has become my salvation. Their names are almost exactly alike because their mission is going to be exactly alike. The first thing that God said, ever said to Hosea, is he tells him about his unlikely marriage. Hello, is this Hosea? Is this God? We've never talked. Oh, hi, Hosea. This is the Lord. By the way, I just wanted to say hi and tell you to go and take yourself a wife of harlotry, verse Hosea 1 and 2, and have children of harlotry, harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. Would you do that for me? That doesn't make sense. Why, Lord, would you want me to do that? It's almost like God speaking to Peter on the rooftop and telling him to eat the unclean. Why, God, would you tell me to do something that you've warned me about doing? Now, these instructions have been variously understood by a lot of different theological students of Scripture throughout the years. Some People believe that he was commanded, commanding Hosea to marry a woman who was a former prostitute. Others contend that taking a wife of harlotry would really just refer to a woman of the northern kingdom of Israel, a land that was guilty of spiritual adultery. But in either case, it's obvious that she was a woman who had been deeply affected by the moral climate of the society that she was in. And God intended to use the prophet's personal relationship with her as a penetrating and focusing object lesson of his own relationship with his own people. He was going to use Hosea as a portrait to hold up before all of Israel of how he felt. Now, I can speculate a little bit on this, but whatever her past was, there may have been some evidence of genuine repentance and faith in Jehovah. I'd like to think so. Maybe she had responded to the spirit-filled ministry of Hosea. Maybe she'd heard him speak. Maybe she had found herself drawn to her deep and unselfish love for God or to a place of deeper and more unselfish love for God, God directed him nonetheless to take her as his wife. And so it was that Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, became the unlikely wife of the budding young preacher called Hosea. Who would have ever, ever thought that a prophet of God would ever go out and take a woman like this woman. Let me say, why would anyone ever think that a God like our God would ever choose us? 
Now, I, I'm speculating a little bit. The early days of their marriage were beautiful. As their love began to blossom and God blessed their union, they had a son. You know, I, I'm trying to think back to those days when we had our first son, how not my heart, but any father's heart, swells with joy and pride at the birth of a son. He was beginning to be convinced that his marriage would be better and that uh, he would, this child would actually begin to brighten his home. But however, God chose the right to name the name of the child. And God named that little boy a name of great prophetic significance to the nation. He called that little boy's name Jezreel because it was at Jezreel that King King Jeroboam's great-grandfather, and you remember him, Jehu, had first come to the throne by his ambitions, crimes of bloodshed and violence. That's where Jehu started out, in Jezreel. While his dynasty was prospering at the moment, its destruction was on the horizon, and guess where it was going to fall apart? It was going to happen in the valley of Jezreel. It was after the birth of Jezreel that Hosea seems to have noticed a change in Gomer. Something's not right. She's a little bit restless. She doesn't seem quite as happy. She feels trapped like a bird in a cage. And he notices this. He went on preaching every day, encouraging that wayward nation of Israel to turn from its sin and trust in God for deliverance from the threat of the surrounding nations. He continued to preach, return unto the Lord. That was the whole theme of his message. And he preached it repeatedly with power. We see a little bit of that message in uh, Hosea 6 and 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. And then again in the 14th chapter in verse 1. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. He preached the message that God had given him to preach. He fulfilled the vocation for which he was called. He was fulfilling his purpose in the kingdom of God. But for some reason, Gomer was restless and disenchanted and not tied to a mission. Her eyes began to wander. She seemed less interested in his ministry. Matter of fact, she may even have grown to resent it. She probably even accused Hosea of thinking more about his preaching than he did of her. So she decided that she'd find other interests interest to occupy herself. I've got to find something to occupy myself. I'm not content with my marriage, my relationship with God or with my husband. So 
I'm going to spend more and more time away from home. Now, I, I want you to see this message in a number of ways because quite likely you might relate to all three of these characters, God, Hosea, and Gomer. You ever feel like I'm disenchanted? I, I can't get behind the prophet? I'm starting to look other places? I'm going to be spending more and more time away from the church? That's more than likely how it happened with Gomer. And it may have been a simply a distant disinterest in the things of the Lord on the part of either husband or wife. But it sets the scene for a great and terrible calamity. And I'll say this, husbands and wives need to do things together and take an interest in each other's activities. The two become one. And how can two walk except they are in agreement? When husbands and wives start to divide and look at different means of entertainment and groups of friends, for a husband to have one set of friends and a wife to have a completely different set of friends, that's not good. In this inspired story, the responsibility is clearly laid upon Gomer rather than on Hosea, however. She lacked one thing that her husband had. She did not share her husband's love and commitment to God. That brings us secondly to his, to Hosea's unrelieved agony. You know, Scripture doesn't give us all the details of what happened, but what it does say would permit us some speculation concerning the trend that was developing in this tragic situation that they were finding themselves in. For instance, we look at Gomer's absences from home. They're growing more and more frequent. They're growing more and more prolonged. And all of a sudden, because they're so frequent and so prolonged, Jose is beginning to feel pangs of suspicion about her faithfulness to him. Take this into consideration. When you're gone from the church all the time, longer and longer and longer, all of a sudden, maybe it's possible that God's starting to suspect that there are things that are going on that shouldn't be. And it, just as it caused Hosea trepidation, it causes others too. I'm sure he laid awake at night and he wrestled with his fears. He preached with a heavy heart during the day. He went about his ministry, but his mind was divided. His wife was no longer connected. He was suspicious, but he continued to do what God had called him to do. And it, it was more difficult. But he stayed connected to his purpose. Well, it happened again. She became pregnant again. And his suspicions were confirmed. It was a girl this time. And Hosea was totally convinced that this little girl was not his little girl. 
So God, again, names the child for the couple. And God says, you are going to call the child Lorahama. Which means unpitied or unloved. That implies that she's not going to enjoy her true father's love. Again, the name symbolic of Israel's wandering from God's love and the discipline uh, that he would have shown to keep her, uh, Hosea, and, or not Hosea, Gomer in line. But even that spiritual message that God gave to Hosea could not soothe the prophet's troubled soul. Because no sooner had they weaned Lorama than Gomer conceived again. And it was another boy. God told Hosea to call him Lo-Ami, which meant not my people or no kin of mine. It symbolized Israel's alienation from God, but it also exposed Gomer's sinful escapades. That child that was born in Hosea's house was not his child. It was confirmed. Now, can you imagine the heartbreak? It's all out in the open now. Everyone around knows about Gomer's affairs. It's not a secret any longer. While the entire second chapter of Hosea's prophecy describes Jehovah's relationship with his unfaithful wife, it's difficult to escape the feeling that it grows out of Hosea's relationship with Gomer, sandwiched as it is between two chapters that dearly, clearly describe this sordid and sad tale. Had he done everything? And have you ever said that to yourself? Could I have done something more? What could I have changed? Well, let's go back and see what Hosea did try. It says in Hosea 2 and 2, it says he pleaded with her. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her. For she is not my wife and I'm not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breast. And then in verse 3, he threatens to disinherit her. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. But still, after all that, she ran off with her lovers because they promised to lavish material things on her. And that's the draw of the world upon each of us, especially on our children. They promise things of the world and they draw you away from the house of God. And you believe a lie. You know, all this really started with a lie when someone was enticed by their own lust, the first man and woman, only two people on the whole face of the earth, 
and 50% of them, actually when it was all said and done, 100% of the human population was enticed by a lie to take something that God did not offer to them. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the forbidden tree. It was the forbidden fruit. But they were enticed to leave God's will and take something that would cause them to be separated from the one that they needed the most in their life, and that was God. And it says in the day that they ate that fruit, they began to die, to die spiritually. There's many voices in the world reaching out and calling out to you. All you have to do is go on the internet, turn on the radio, flip on the television, drive down the highway and look at a billboard, walk into a doctor's office and pick up a magazine, look on the walls of a building that you're walking through, go through a public school. It's everywhere, voices, enticements, to leave your lover and follow after something that you're forbidden to have. Hosea 2 and 5, their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. That is a lie. Every good and every perfect gift cometh from your Father above. That's why I pray over every meal. God has given me everything that I have. He's given me the ability to go out and to bring it in. The world didn't give it to me. God has given it to me. And I feel a commitment and an obligation to the lover of my soul that has given himself for my salvation and provided me with spiritual benefits and inheritance and a name that's above every other name and blood that washes away every sin and a hope of tomorrow and an eternity with no night. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Oh, it's easy to give away, like Esau, your inheritance for something that can provide temporary satisfaction. It's like every time I've ever seemed to fast, I end up going by a donut shop. I've never been a donut that I haven't liked. But see, the donut really, if we want to talk about dieting, which I probably need to study up on that more, but is it the healthiest thing for you? Why is it that the things that taste the best are the worst? I heard someone say one time, it's easy to have a diet, just if it tastes good, you can't have it. You don't need a book. If it tastes good, don't eat it. But my Bible says I need to change my appetite. Because like Paul said, I'm a completely different creature. The things I loved, I now hate. The things I hate, I now love. And then when I tasted God, which I was skeptical about because it looked like liver and onions on my plate, 
I remember mom saying, oh, don't, you'll get by the look and you can get past the smell. Just taste it, you'll like it. That was a failure. <laughs> but when I came to God, the Lord said, why don't you taste me? Taste and see for the Lord is good. He was like the, the manna in the wilderness when the people were hungry. They came across it, and it didn't look like much. It was just colon, like colander seeds upon the vegetation. But he was saying, take and eat. It's manna. What is it? Take it. Make it. And it says that when they took the manna and they made it and beat up the colander seeds into bread, it was sweet. And it was fulfilling and filling. You know, we find that Hosea tried to stop her from going on occasion. In verse 6 it says, in Hosea 2, Therefore I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. He does that, you know that, right? He said to Paul, you know, isn't it hard for you to kick against the pricks? Aren't I putting walls up before you? Am I, not, am I not trying to restrain you from doing wrong, but you continually try to go through the roadblocks that I've set up before you? Before you? So Hosea tried to stop her. God tries to stop you. But she continued to seek her companions in sin. Verse 7 says of Hosea 2, she will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband at first, for then I was better off than now. Isn't it amazing that all the things that the world says will satisfy you still leave you empty? That they promise you that if you buy this or you buy that, You'll look young, you'll be happy, all these other things will fall into place, but yet it leaves you restless and empty because there's only truly one thing that's going to satisfy you inside, and that's the presence of God. And Hosea is following the voices, calling to her. Well, I guess I'm going to go back to church again. I'm disenchanted, so the, the backslider comes back home and he says, I, I just didn't find it out there, I'm going to come back. But then, after a while, it would start all over again, the restlessness, the discontent. And in Hosea's case, it happened for the final time. Maybe it was a note that was left on the table. Maybe it was a word that was sent by a friend. But the essence of the message that Hosea received from Gomer was, I'm leaving for good this time. I found my true love. I'm never coming back home again. Now, I want you to stop. Have you ever face that type of rejection in your life. 
It might have been a relationship that you valued so much. It might have been a child to you or it might have been your relationship to someone else. I'm leaving. I don't love you. I'm never coming back. It was terribly hard for Hosea because you know what? The guy loved her. He loved this harlot. Some people say, well, how can you love her? She's useless. Get rid of her, Hosea. You don't need to follow after her. The law lets you go because of her idolatry and adultery. But Hosea was helplessly in love with Gomer. And he suffered. He grieved. We can't escape the message of this story, this message of undying love on the part of Hosea. Hosea wanted to see Gomer restored to his side as a faithful wife. He never gave up after all the shame and embarrassment that she had caused him. Hosea still longed to have his wife by his side and he believed that God was great enough to do it. Can you have that great a faith? And then there was the proverbial grapevine. One day word came by the way of that proverbial grapevine. The, they call it the gossip's hotline that Gomer had been deserted by her lover, the one that said he would never leave her. She had sold herself into slavery, and now she was at rock bottom. That was the last straw. Certainly now people thought Hosea will forget her. She's wasted her health, her inheritance, all that she has, she's a slave. She's a wreck of a human being. Surely Hosea will get over her now. But I want to tell you, love does not die. But his heart said, no. He could not give her up. And then God spoke to him and said, Hosea, go again. Love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods. Do you see that verse? He refers to what Hosea's gone through to himself. Go and love a woman that's loved by her husband. He says, I recognize your love for her, Hosea. Even though she's an adulteress, even as I love Israel, who is in spiritual adultery, though they turn to other gods. You know, one of the things that the Lord tries to tell each and every, or the devil tries to tell each and every one of us, you stepped over the line. You're not worth anything anymore. You've had your, your shot at it. You couldn't make the grade you fell short of the glory of God. It's hopeless. Just be content to live at the level of 
degradation that you find yourself in. God doesn't love you anymore. But the message that I bring, not only in this church, but when I go to every bed of every dying patient that I ever see, the one thing I will never, ever, ever, ever forget to tell them is that God loves them. Even where they are and in the condition that they're at. But Brother Kylie, they may have been a drunk. You don't know anything about them. Well, I know a lot about Gomer. I know a lot about myself. That God loved me while I was yet a sinner. And he was hopelessly in love with me. And you could not have convinced him to find another way around except by saving me. There was only one recourse to love. It wants the object of its attention and affection. Only one who knows the love and forgiveness of God can ever love this perfectly. And one who has experienced this loving forgiveness cannot help but love and forgive others. If you're Gomer and you're back in Hosea's house, after you've been on the bottom, your mercy that you've received will also begin to extend to others like yourself that find them in similar situations. To whom much is given, much is expected. As much mercy as I've received from God, as much love and compassion that God has poured out on me, I can't help but extend it to others. Now when we read Ephesians 5 and 25, reading what Paul said, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, it gives us a new, whole new picture of that verse. Of Hosea and Gomer, the choppy or the, the auction block, the broken, skinny, malnourished, woman that was there with no hope, bought back by her husband. Do you know, he heard about her being for sale, so he began his search. He was driven by that indestructible divine love that he would not stop until he redeemed her back onto himself. That's the kind of love that bears all things. That's the kind of love that believes all things and it hopes all things. That's the kind of love that endures all things. It's a love that never ends. And he did find her ragged, torn, sick, dirty, disheveled, destitute, chained to an auction block in a filthy slave market, a repulsive shadow of the woman she once was, his wife. And many would say, I don't know how anyone could love her now. But Hosea bought her from her slavery for 15 shekels of silver and 13 bushels of barley. That's mentioned in Hosea 3 and 2. And when he took her on to himself, this is what he said to her. You shall stay with me for many days. 
You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be toward you. He actually paid for her, brought her home, and eventually restored her to his, her position, original position as his wife. We don't find a lot in Scripture about the relationship with each other after this, but we assume that God used Hosea's supreme act of forgiving to melt her heart and to change her life. Up from the ashes, restored by grace. How many times should a husband or wife forgive? Some contend, and you've heard this before, if I keep forgiving, I simply affirm him in his pattern of sin, so I refuse to forgive him. Or, how about this one? If I keep forgiving, she'll think that she can get away with anything she wants. And then another says, if I keep forgiving, it's like putting my seal of approval on his behavior. Or another one that you hear, I can't take another hurt like that. If he does that one more time, I'm leaving. Is that the kind of love God has for us? Husbands, love your wives. Wives, as Christ loved the church? Has God ever said, if you sin one more time, you're out the door? I'm not going to forgive you because if I forgive you, you'll just go on and do it again. Is God's love like that? Does he expect our love for one another to be different than the love that he exhibits towards us? Would we give something less to another than we have received? But you know what makes forgiving easier? Unconditional love. I remember Peter was asking the question, Lord, how many, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Should I go all the way up to seven times? And the Lord looked at him and said, seven times? I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. In other words, into infinity. Don't stop forgiving because how do you not know that Gomer will not come back home and be restored to the place of God's wife or to Hosea's wife? How do you know? I, I think about how I, I was laying in bed the other night and um, I, I always wrestle with this. I've, I've wrestled with it ever since I started with chaplaincy care because I think it was ground into me from early salvation all through these years about how I want to share so much of the truth with these people that are dying. And by the way, I'm back fulfilling my purpose again. I, I went back to pro-health care full-time. I'm working a point eight, and I, I was glad, and I told my boss the other day, I said, you know what, I have no more buyer's remorse. I realize that I have a purpose. Brother Brown, you said the word purpose. I wanted to say amen. I have a purpose. 
My purpose is to be a chaplain. I am a chaplain. I know that's what I am. And I get great fulfillment out of being what I am. But going back to where I was, I keep thinking about how often, how many of these people, we just had a memorial service over at Westwood. In one year, 750 were there, represented. 750 people died this last year. And as a chaplain, there's a lot of those people that I know. And it's a burden I bear. And and sometimes in, in, when I'm standing, I'm next to the bed, I'm thinking about their lives and I know the, the things that they've been involved in and the, their past because we'll do a life review or something like that. And I want to say, God, they're not ready. I, I wish I could get them. I, wa- I want to see them cry and receive the Holy Ghost and I want them to repent. I want them to get baptized. And the Lord is, is laying on my heart You work in the garden in the position that I pledged you and don't you dare judge. And it it came back to me. Judge not that you be not judged for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged also. And that came over me and I realized that when I was by their bedside, I was the... I was the one that was on the bench. I was the one that was looking at them and saying, you're not worthy, you're not worthy. But God's saying, can't you look at them like I look at them? Can't you look down and see their hurts and their pains? And can't you tell them that I love them? And can't you let me be the husband I am to them? I have a mission And thank God that God didn't call me to be the righteous judge over all the earth because I'm not qualified. But your main purpose and mission in the time that we have left on earth is to show the love of God and the mercy of God and the long-suffering of God to people that are tired of going from lover to lover to lover. You're to be the one that helps pick them up from the auction block when they don't have anything left and bring them back home to Hosea's house, to bring them back into the church so that they can rekindle a relationship that they lost when they listened to the voices of the world that drew them away. In other words, why don't you be the hands that catch them when they fall? Don't be the person that says, good riddance, to bad rubbish because I believe that Gomer came back and I believe she took her rightful place and never ever left again. I sympathize with Hosea and what he went through but if you were to ask him this morning if it was worth it all he'd say everything was worth it. And I think in closing the day, I just want to say this. We need to love like that. We just need to love like God loves. And we can't say, I don't know what that's like. How do I know how God loves? You don't? You mean to tell me that you're here today? And you've never expect, experienced God's love in your life? 
It's God's love that brought you here. That was the vehicle that Drew drove in this morning. And I think, um, I'll, I'll say this, that the love that I'm talking about is built on a foundation that cannot be removed and, and maintain love upon it. That foundation is trust. Can you trust God? And can God trust you? Because without trust, you can say that you have love, but really you don't. So the next time you get some bad news, do you trust the one that you love? He did tell you this, all things work together for the good of those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose, do you trust him? If you don't, don't tell people that you love him. He's your friend. Let's stand together today. Who do you relate to today? Are you Hosea? Gomer? How about his friends, the ones that were trying to convince him to just dump her? How about God? Do you relate to God and how he feels? The Lord says, I've loved you with an undying love. I'm the bride, part of the bride of Christ. And I'm glad when he says he's not going to share me with another. I'm totally content with him. Lord Jesus, this morning, I pray that some things that were shared might reach home into situations that are going on in our lives. Help us, Lord Jesus, to see through the story of Hosea. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.